Welcome to the Primate Cast. We're your hosts, Andrew McIntosh. And Chris Martin. So normally we like to start our podcast by giving a brief introduction of our guests and talking a little bit about why they're here. But in this case, we have a bit of an exception because our guest actually needs no introduction. That's right. We think most of our listeners are familiar with our guest today, who is Dr. Jane Goodall. Yeah, and so she's going to start the interview by going right into why she's here in Japan. Well, I've been coming to Japan at one time. It was every year, and then it was every other year. Because, um, the, well, first of all, to visit Tetsuro Matsuzawa, whom I've known forever and ever, and to meet I and then Ayumu and see what was going on and meet the students. But at the same time, also going to other parts of Japan and trying to develop our youth program, Roots and Chutes, which is now in 132 countries around the world. Wow, it's, ever growing. It's ever growing. But um, I always, you know, I think the last, the last visit, or even the last two visits, I never managed to get to see I or to come here. But every year I've been coming to Saga, mm. to the big, the big conference. Yeah. Which is this year in Hokkaido. Um, yes. We'll probably come back to uh, your visiting PRI and the chimpanzees here, but first, as we've heard from a, a, po- a previous podcast with Professor Matsuzawa. Possibly the first encounter you had with Japanese primatologists was actually at Gombei. It was um, my first meeting was with uh, um, Dr. Itani and the famous Imanishi. Right. Um, yes, they came to visit Gombei. Actually, the very first visitor was um, was Dr. Itani, hmm. and he <laughs> he got off the water taxi because we're on the edge of the lake. And my mother was in the camp because it was in the early days and the authorities said I couldn't be on my own, so she volunteered to come for four months. I was up in the hills as usual and um, <laughs> Dr. Tani got off this water taxi just with his sleeping bag rolled around him and he said uh, with the Japanese bow, Dr. Leakey tells me not to come, I am here. <laughs> and, and the thing was that on their way, from Kigoma, which isn't very far, it's about 12 miles, they had to stop because there was a um, water spout, which are quite dangerous, and so this water taxi had to pull into the shore, and he still believes, I think, <laughs> we still believe to the end of his life that it was uh, Lewis Leakey's spirit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, it was a big joke, and then he came back with with um, Professor Imanishi later. Hmm. Yeah. So, Professors Itani and Imanishi, of course, came from Kyoto University, and when they weren't exploring Africa, they were here setting up the PRI. So there's kind of a long history there. And I'm interested to ask you about your interactions here at the PRI, and uh, especially with the chimpanzees here, kind of the history of that, and your friendship with chimpanzee I. Well, I suppose I first met I when she was very young, and... And I suppose at that time her tasks were very simple. They seemed quite complex to me. I think looking back on it, they would be very, very easy tasks for her. And then after that, you know, I went to see her each time. And there was one occasion when I was... I can't remember exactly how it worked, but I was looking through this glass. Yeah, I remember. 
And uh, I used to get very frustrated if she made a mistake and the computer too many times went bing, you know, so she didn't get her reward. And she bristled up and uh, I, I think it was, uh, I suppose, I suppose it was Tetsuro who told me that she would come and hit the glass, but it was fine, it was bulletproof glass. And so she all did her bristling up and she rushed towards where I was peering through this little window and she stopped and she kissed me through the glass. And this was a cause of great... And she did that twice in the same session. So I think we never forgot that. Mm. And you've met so many chimpanzees in your lifetime, probably more than anybody else. So I'm interested in what you think of how the chimpanzees here kind of compare to other chimpanzees. Well, I mean, the, the new facility is mind-blowing. It's mm-hmm. just incredible. Uh, I wish more captive chimps could have something similar, but of course they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, the chimps themselves, well, it's really when you start working with these beings and expecting that they're going to perform well, that you find out a whole lot more about their mind when you ask the right questions, when you know the chip well enough to realize what they might be good at doing and don't bother with the stuff they probably will be bored with and won't want to do. And I think the fascinating thing was finding how how much I enjoyed coming and, and being challenged by the by the computer. Couldn't wait to get to her to her task. And would sometimes well, I watched her ask to do it again mm-hmm. if she made mistakes. She does do that. <laughs> and kind of making a, a, a kind of broader picture of this, I'm wondering what you think kind of the role of chimps in captivity should be. I mean here we focus on their cognition and but in general, what do you think it's good for? Well, education is one, mm-hmm. if they're exhibited in the right sort of way. Um, yes, learning more about their intellect is very useful, especially if you've been watching them only in the wild and you have a feeling that, well, this looks really intelligent behavior, but I don't see it very often, I can't really prove it. And then you get information coming from some cognitive research and you think well yes of course I mean I knew it was intelligent here's some nice proof that they can do things like this mm-hmm. and of course the, the Jane Goodall Institute has already established I suppose a number of sanctuaries and things for the, the chimpanzees that were unfortunate to have been removed from their native habitats yeah these are the orphans of the bushmeat trade mostly but we still carry on the research at Gombe mm-hmm. I get there twice a year I don't do the research anymore But we have a great team, small, because it's a very tiny national park, and all the data now is being digitized, so from right from 1961 to the present at Duke University. It's a big, big project. Every year we carry on with this research. Mm -hmm. is makes the study one year more valuable, because, you know, chimps can live to be, the oldest is meant to be 75, which is a pretty old lady. Mm. And she lives... I love it. She lives in Florida where people go to retire. <laughs> so anyway, she's called Little Mama. I know her very well. Mm. And uh, she's quite a character. But um, so our, you know, our Gombe studies now are only in its 54th year. So chimps can live longer than that. That's We've amazing. A smattering from that study site of life histories, really. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing to imagine a field site that has so much longevity still just 
spanning less than a generation of the animal under study. Mm. Mm. And we're still learning new things. I mean, you know, and for the first time now, we can be assured who the fathers are by collecting fecal samples, getting DNA profiling done. We used to guess before, and we mm. were nearly always right, it turns out, but mm. um, now we know. Now we know for sure. So it opens up whole new areas of study. Is there a way a male could possibly identify his own offspring or the offspring his father when there's no permanent pair bond and when the female's likely to be mated by all the males? Well, these are fascinating questions. Do you think since you could recognize, you said you were mostly right, so if the humans can recognize who the fathers likely are, do you think the chimps can also I make that know. same recognition? We, we did it um, based on the fact that in the wild the male will uh, take a female off on a consortium. I see which can last for two weeks. And so as we have records of, of their cycles, it, you know, you can sort of mm-hmm. work out, oh, she, she was away with that male for two, three weeks, mm-hmm. and eight lunar months later she has a baby. And as the male tries to keep her completely to himself, he takes her to the edge of the periphery of the range. Mm-hmm. So normally we're right. So I don't know whether this honeymoon thing gives the male an understanding who is in, who is infants, so maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that you're, <clears throat> so far we've talked both about the scientific study of the chimpanzees, but also the conservation. And so this year's Congress of the International Primatological Society, John Oates was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award for his work in, mainly in conservation in Africa. And he, during his uh, acceptance speech, he made the, or he was talking about the role of, of let's say, young primatologists, especially in the future of of primatology and and the conservation of of primates around the world. And it started me thinking about this. uh, And for somebody like you, it's a very relevant question. At what point did it become apparent to you that in addition to the scientific study and understanding the species, that there was also a great need for conservation and spreading that information around Mm. to a a global audience? It was a kind of boom moment. It was a conference in Chicago way back when uh, actually I, I'm sure that's the first time I met Dr. Matsusawa because he came over with his brand new information about I and and uh, we had a session at this Understanding Chimpanzees conference on, on conservation and it was completely shocking, it was utterly shocking, like all the way on every study site across Africa, forests disappearing, chimps caught in snares and the beginning of the bushmeat trade, that commercial hunting of wild animals for food. And we also had a, a session of secretly filmed video from medical research labs, from training of circus chimps. And, you know, uh, by this time I had my PhD, I had the life I dreamed of as a child, I was out in the field, I was analysing data, writing some stuff, building up a research centre. It was totally the ideal life. And I just came out as an activist. Mm. I don't remember making any conscious decision. It was just, okay, I've had the chimps that give me all this, now I've got to try and do something for them. Mm. So that was the 1986 conference? Yeah. yeah. Okay, and that, that happens every ten world. years now, that conference. Well, it was supposed mm. to happen every five years. Okay. But <laughs> it costs money to have conferences like that. Mm. But clearly it was a really important meeting if it kind of spurred this interest in conservation? Well, I mean, for me, it was just mm-hmm. totally life-changing. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I began traveling in Africa to the range countries, talking to NGOs on the ground, researchers, 
trying to get up to some, you know, like the Minister of the Environment, or usually it was a first lady, you could seldom get to the President. And um, it, was, it was during that that I realized, you know, more and more about the problems faced by the Africans and the poverty and the, and the disease and the lack of education. And it became pretty obvious to me that if we can't improve the lives of the people living around the wilderness areas, that we can't, conservation will never really work. And so we started our Takari program. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you see, um, so one of the things that I often think about is that for a young scientist now, for a young primatologist, there's so much emphasis on this publish or perish regime in academia. So in order to secure positions in the future in universities, for example, uh, it really does take a lot of devotion to that topic. And then conservation on the other side also requires incredible devotion. So what do you see the role of a young primatologist, for example? Well, I suppose the young primatologist who's really interested in a scientific career had better go for that first, but they're going to be pushed up against conservation all the time Mm -hmm. because almost everywhere you go now there are threats to the chimpanzees or other primates, so it's hard to avoid. But, uh, you know, first things first, get your degree, get a get a name, get a recognition, and then maybe it'll be a bit easier to, to, to do something for conservation. Yes, and you're a very perfect example of this story. Right here. And then finally, you know, okay, so we can, we can desperately work to study chimps in the wild. We can fight to conserve them. We can fight to conserve the forests. And yet none of this is going to be the slightest use unless young generations are growing up to be better stewards of this planet. You know, it's not just conservation in Africa and other places where the primates live. It's the whole flipping planet. Mm -hmm. And it's the chimps, it's the chimp studies that give me this million-dollar question. The million-dollar question is, because we're closer to chimps and bonobos than anything else, as a platform to say, okay, but we're different. And what is that difference? Mm. And, okay, take I and Ayumu as prize examples of how intelligent chimpanzees can be in the right situation. Compare that brain with the brain that sent a robot up to Mars that's crawling around taking photos. I mean, you can't really compare the two. And so the question is, if we are, and we surely are, the most intellectual being that's ever walked the planet, how come we're destroying our only home? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's because we've lost wisdom. We make de- major decisions based on how will this affect me now or the next political campaign, usually the next shareholder meeting. And it used to be decisions based on how will this affect our people generations ahead. Mm. And that's forgotten for the bottom line, this materialistic life, this crazy search for money and more money and more money. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was Gandhi who said the planet can produce enough for human need, but not for human greed. So the chimps led me to this question, mm-hmm. to which I had no answer. Mm-hmm. So what's next? For me? For you, yes. Just, I don't know how long I will physically be able to carry on traveling 300 days a year but as long as I can I suppose I will mainly because it makes a difference you know in in, um, in uh, Jay Sue's lab yesterday there were about 20 
students and at least a quarter of them said, well, I'm, I decided to do, um, you know, go into biology, uh, primatology because of you, because I read your books when I was in um, grade school. So, you know, it does make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Well, Dr. Goodall, again, thank you very much for joining us here on the Primate Cast. It's Thanks been so pleasure. much. This has been great. All right. Thanks. You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University.